0: You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where I tried to come up with an intro for this episode, but all I could do was draw a blank. Hello everyone and welcome to a 10-year anniversary reunion of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. And no, unfortunately it's not a 10-year anniversary, I haven't even been going for more than three actually, but we are covering a anniversary here at the Just One of the Guys podcast in the comic today, as Kyle goes back for his high school reunion. Yeah, and he meets essentially all the people that you would think that you would meet at your high school reunion. From the jock douchebags, to the pregnant moms with seven or eight children, to just the annoying people that you never wanted to meet again. It's essentially gross point blank, written for Green Lantern. Plus, we're also going to be covering in our second book, a little story called Green Lantern, Evil's Might, which is an Elseworlds story, which pits Green Lantern Kyle Rayner in the middle of the Boss Tweed era of New York politics. It's an interesting story about Irishmen dealing with, well, corrupt businessmen in New York City. Plus, we'll also be getting to some of your emails and uh, basically talking about the comics. So after we get done with these podcast promos, like usual, we'll be getting right into our coverage... Of the Green Lantern comic that obviously took a cue from a John Cusack movie. Let me go on like I blister in the sun. Let me go on, big hands. I know you're the one.
1: A long time ago. In a galaxy far, far away, a great adventure took place. Oh no! What would
2: we do now? Artoo, did you find a cigarette? Well, I don't think smoking is
1: grown up at all.
0: Uh, don't be so ridiculous, Artu.
2: Under rules are for Earthlings. <laughs> all you need is a little rewiring. But children need to be fully immunized.
1: I'm why one by droid. Show me what you got! Wampa, wampa, wampa! We picked up something.
0: It's the Millennium Falcon.
1: I am Boba Fett. The ship you seek is nearby.
0: Growing up stars, yay!
2: Available the first Monday of every month
1: at 2TrueFreaks.com Offer expires May 31st, 1980. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin podcast. Where even bad comics are a bargain. And good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast on iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny.
0: And we are back, but before we get to what we're obviously looking forward to, the wonderful gross point blank version of Green Lantern, let's go ahead and check out the Just One of the Guys email bag to see what you wonderful listeners have written in this time out. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. (laughs) And our first letter comes in from my good friend of the Great White North, Scott Davis, and Scott Davis writes in with the title of of his story, his email, House on Fire. He says, Hi, Sean. I hope everything's going well in the Super State. Well, it's it's hot and cold here. We've had a couple of warm days in the past couple of days, so that's interesting. He says, I've caught up on some of your Green Lantern issues, and I'd like to comment on them if you don't mind. Please go ahead. Greenlander140, he says, I found this a boring issue. Nothing really happened except for some good old man jokes and a weird fight between Kyle and Alan Scott at the end. If this were the first Greenlander I had read, it would be tough to get excited to pick up the next one. I agree that the splash page of the Gay and Lesbian Dance Club on page 5 is drawn very awkward. But the splash page of Alan and Kyle on page 11 was fantastic, and the image of Kyle on page 20 releasing the ion power was awesome. You said it perfectly. Despite the art looking a bit off at times, Daryl Banks' artwork will definitely be missed. The letters page in this issue addresses the Terry coming out issue in 137, and I was impressed to see that DC was balanced enough to post some of the negative reviews. I enjoyed the issue, and it was too bad that so many people in this world are still so misinformed and unaccepting of Terry's sexual preferences that they really make themselves sound ridiculous on paper. Yeah, it was, I wouldn't say progressive, but it was at least nice that DC printed some dissenting opinions. I know there are people out there who still look at homosexuality as abhorrent and wrong, and it's its a difficult issue it's one of those things where we just have to get over our uncomfortable feelings about it. I I, I don't want to get political on this. You know, I, I will just agree with you, Scott, that it was a good thing that they decided to publish both sides and allow people to air their differences, but nowadays I think you kind of have to come down on the side that it is just what it is, and You need to at least be accepting of it, but you don't have to approve of it. How about that? Anyway, going back to the email, he says, Green Lantern of 141, House on Fire Part 1. During your review of this issue, you summed up perfectly what I'm thinking about this run on Green Lantern also. I was really happy with what Ron Mars was doing, and he definitely went out on top with some of his best writing near the end of his run. I'm sure Winnick is a nice guy and all, but his writing isn't grabbing me at all. In its defense, though, Ron Mars's run is a tough act to follow. Eaglesham's artwork in this issue is fantastic, though. He's definitely got a good handle on drawing women, that's for sure. Fatality looks absolutely amazing. And it is very weird that John is visiting Fatality in prison with his hilarious Matrix-style sunglasses all Lawrence, that Lawrence Fishburne made famous. I'm not sure where this is going at all. I agree with you, a lot of writers don't know what to do with John, and it's still evident in the current series. Check out Greenlander Core number 36 for his bizarre encounter with the Star Sapphires. Jade's gender comment about how she's not a threatened female on page 11 definitely came out of left field. Winnick must have some feminist friends that are like this and needed to comment about them. Winnick's tribute to the firefighters on page 15 is excellent, though, and then, ugh, page 20 with the very graphic, the back of Kyle's skin burned, but it's funny how his butt is fine. Yeah, I was... I don't know how you know. Essentially, his back got completely mauled by the fire, but no, his tush completely unharmed. I guess you know you can't can't harm Kyle's tush. It'll just turn too many people off. Who knows? The splash of the '90s-looking villains is hilarious. The Red Sonia ripoff looks amazing, though. Yeah, um, aesthetically, her design was appealing. We'll go with that going back to the email. Lantern 142 House on Fire Part 2. This was an okay issue, and I agree the art wasn't very good. Uh, if I was John, I'd want to visit Fatality in prison again, too, after their last encounter. Oh, you mean where she basically took off all her clothes? Mm. I guess this one is for the ladies. <laughs> yes, John gets to take off his clothes, so there you go. It's uh, it's quid pro quo. They're, they're, you know, she does something for him, he does something for her. Fatality got naked in the last issue, and John gets naked in this one. On page 12, John's paralysis is all in his head. Are you serious? Well, uh, if you've read any further, yeah, you kind of understand what the problem was. Come on, Wenick, Scott says. On page 13, it was nice to see Jade's beaver. Construct. Again, humorous. Which, uh, Scott says, has been a national symbol of Canada since 1975, so Canada's national symbol is the beaver. Just let that sit there. I think there's a huge mistake at the end of this issue. On page 22, Kyle refers to Effigy as being Jenny's brother. I swear I I reread the last three pages at least ten times, and I still come to this conclusion. On page 20, Jade calls him Martin and is holding him really close, and he responds to her as Jen. Then on page 22, Kyle says that he's your brother, and Jenny does it tonight. Am I missing something, or is when it confused me again with one of his weird witticisms? I don't know what was going on with that. That was just... something. I don't know. It's, it's probably not going to be explained, and it's probably best if you don't think about it much. Anyway, Scott concludes with thanks, Sean, and have a great week, Scott. Well, thank you, Scott, for writing in. I appreciate uh, getting a chance to read your email, and I appreciate you writing in. Scott uh, has always been a great fan of both this and Lantern cast and it's always great to have his emails Thanks again, Scott. But that does it for emails if you want to write in like I said at the end of the show you'll get the email address. It's just one of the guy's podcast at gmail.com Feel free to write in if you'd like. But for now we're going to close up the email bag and go ahead and head into our coverage of Green Lantern number 153. Lantern number 153 was cover dated October 2002 and released on August 14th of 2002. It had a cover price in the U.S. of 225 and 375 in Canada. The title was You Can Never, Never, Never Go Home Again. The writer again was Judd Wenick, penciler was Dale Eaglesham, anchor Rodney Ramos, colorist Moose Bowman, letterer Kurt Hathaway, assistant editor Morgan Dontonaville, and editor was Bob Schreck. In the kitchen of Kyle Rayner's village apartment, the young hero laments to his girlfriend, Jenny Lynn Hayden, how this could be the most dreadful thing he's ever had to face. Jenny says that he doesn't have to go, but Kyle remains steadfast, saying he faced down greater challenges in his life. And with that, Kyle is resolved. He will attend his 10-year high school reunion in Los Angeles, provided he could bring Jen along and that she wears that black dress with the spaghetti straps and the hearts on the fanny. Correcting him by saying that is lingerie, Jenny wonders if Kyle's trepidation is because he was considered geeky in high school, and Kyle says that he was cool, he was totally cool in high school, and he'd like to keep it that way. Later, Kyle and Jenny are zooming westward as Greenlander and Jade, while Kyle complains like Seinfeld about the state of air travel. Luckily, that doesn't last too long as the duo land in L.A. and head to the Rainer home to meet with Kyle's mother, Mora, who through Atkins dieting and Hollywood surgeries is now surprisingly MILF-like. Giving Jenny a warm hug, Maura asks why she hasn't been introduced sooner, especially since Kyle makes it out to L.A. nearly every week for dinner. Jenny is just as surprised and rightfully a little peeved about the omission, as is Maura for Kyle not introducing them earlier. So in order to set things right, Kyle explains his dilemma to both of them. He was concerned about messing up his relationship with Jen after the breakup and failed marriage proposal, and he didn't want to worry his mother about his increased powers as Ion. But with confessions out of the way, Kyle heads to his room to unpack while Jenny and Mora spend a few moments comparing stories. But all girl talk is put on hold as Kyle enters his room and finds that the 80s have not gone that far away. After a few more playful barbs about his taste in blacklight posters of hair metal bands, Kyle mentions that his mother doesn't know about him finding his father, and he'd like to keep it this way, for now. Cuts to the reunion where Cal and Ginny come dressed to the nines, and the event goes just about as one would expect it to. Cal meets with people that he has no idea who they were, Ginny gets inappropriate questions asked about the extent of her skin color, Kyle runs into a girl whose disdain in high school was an attempt to woo him, and Ginny meets with a Prozac and pregnancy crowd. By the end of the night, the two are more than ready to call it quits, so they head back to the Rainer home for a quick midnight snack. After Ginny excuses herself to go to bed kyle reconstructs the leftovers and tissues away much to his mother's amusement. after being asked if he misses the power of ion kyle mentions that he did what he could to help people including himself in fact he tracked down his father and met with him tearful mora tells her son about having to send him away and kyle says that he completely understands he doesn't blame her or his father Emotions washing over them, the two embrace with Maura telling Kyle that he was always a good boy. But maternal bonding is cut short as a distraught Jenny enters the kitchen with the cell phone. Telling Kyle it's John on the line, Jenny hands the phone to him. Kyle asks what's going on and learns that something awful has just happened to young Terry Berg. This essentially could have been a one-joke issue dealing with Kyle attending his high school reunion, very much like Gross Point Blank, and yes, there were elements on there, but instead, it's actually another multiple-story drama dealing with Kyle and his family, rather than dealing with Green Lantern. Yes, the high school tropes are a bit cliched, and like I said, it does smack very heavily of Gross Point Blank, and the emotions with Kyle's mom over the discovery of his dad are kind of over the top as well but it's intercut incredibly well and the reader isn't allowed to stay on one scene very long which allows it to not get grating or annoying so it doesn't get goofy or overwrought either i think eaglesham continues to do a great job on the art the art is really superlative with the minor exception on the occasion he decides to omit jenny having any internal organs but other than that this was a really good issue with an ending that's going to lead into one of the more controversial issues of Green Lantern. Um, we're going to be covering that here in a couple of weeks. Well, we're going to be covering that, obviously, in a week, and I'm interested to hear what people will think about that, because, yeah, it's a pretty important issue of Green Lantern. But that's all I have specifically, Let's, or that's all I have generally. Let's go specifically and start with the cover. Once again, Scott Williams and Jim Lee do the cover, and this is what leads you to believe that this will be kind of a goof of an issue. You've got Kyle in his Green Lantern uniform talking to a person in a parrot mascot uniform. Kyle's looking really awkward and Jen standing behind him in the background. And Unfortunately, Jim Lee draws Jen to be far too skinny as well. I mean, that's Jim Lee's style though, but it's an interesting cover. It's decent enough, but yeah, from looking at the cover, you're just going to think this is going to be kind of a goof of an issue. Plus, showing up at your 10-year reunion in your Green Lantern uniform, probably not the brightest thing to do. Pages 1 through 4, one of the things I also kind of, I'm kind of disappointed with the equal Sham with, he seems to get a really good job depicting Jenny's facial expressions throughout these first four pages, but Kyle seems like kind of a blank. He doesn't have as much definition to his face, In fact, in some places, he looks very bland. There's only a couple of panels in here where he actually looks like he's showing any emotion at all, while Jenny, throughout the entirety of the scene, is very well rendered. It's it's just a disconnect. Maybe Eagle Sham just prefers drawing the female, you know, the form of the female face, more than he does the male. Page five. Wow. uh, (laughs) Mora is very MILF-like here. Uh, She really wasn't bad-looking back in issue 88, when she was introduced to Donna, but here she looks less frumpy. She's got a very clingy shirt on and you know, she says that she's lost weight and dieted, which, you know, wouldn't be unexpected. The LA culture of having to look beautiful would make sense. But yeah, it is a bit of a change from when we last saw Mora in the book. Page six, again, we get the trope of Kyle not wanting to introduce his girlfriend to his mom, which was one in issue 88 as well. But then on pages seven and eight, however, Winnick does a good job of scripting Kyle's explanation of why he's kept them apart for so long. That doesn't seem as forced as the situation. Kyle loves both of these women in his life, but he's just uncomfortable about how they might interact. And I think Winnick does a good job of allowing Kyle to explain why he's been acting this way. Page 10, we get reintroduced to Kyle's room, which I guess, like most parents, has not been changed since they moved out, and Kyle has a poster of white rat poison on his wall, and I guess that's the quote-unquote hair metal band that Kyle was into when he was in high school, which I I think was, uh, I think that was fronted by the lead singer Stephen Percy Russell Michaels, I think that was the guy, yeah, that was him. Pages 12 through 15, this is where the cliches really run thick, as we get per, a person running into Kyle that he has no recollection of, Kyle meeting an obnoxious furniture salesman, Jenny meeting a mom with seven kids named after knights in the round table, Kyle meeting a girl who had a crush on him but showed it by belittling him in high school, Jenny meeting the vapid pharmaceutical surgery girl, and Kyle having his job as a cartoonist mocked. Again, Eaglesham does a great job at depicting Jenny's unease, but not so much with Kyle. His, again, his facial expressions don't seem to have the depth that Eaglesham is putting into Jenny. When That's kind of disappointing when Kyle's supposed to be the main character of the book. Page 18, we get a really good use of the nine-panel grid here to show the slow progression of, of Mora coming to grips with the revelation about her husband being alive. She had no idea. She had no contact with him. In fact, I don't think Kyle has ever mentioned to her before that he had any interaction with with his father or with his uncle up until this point. So that she's finding out that he's li- It's really well depicted on these pages, and the nine-panel grid allows for that slow progression and gives it a, a very cinematic quality. Then that moves into page 20, which is, again, the artwork really sells it. It's it's just a couple of panels of Kyle and Mora hugging realizing that you know they're they're still a family and that despite all the things that they've gone through and all the tragedy and them not having her not having her husband and Kyle not having her father that they still love each other and it's it's a very touching moment and eagle sham sells it with the art here this is where he really excels here but then all of that is broken up by this by this phone call and again Eagle Sham just excels, and here, here he actually does a great job with Kyle on these last on this last page. we've got a four panel grid, and the first panel is Jenny handing Kyle the phone, and you only see her lower jaw and you see her lip, and she's very. You can tell she's distraught. her 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 facial expression from her mouth is very downtrodden, and you see Kyle from the side talking to John, and then suddenly just him breaking down in tears. So, you know, something really tragic has happened and we're going to find out about it next issue. But for now, that's it. it. It was a it was a good issue, an unexpected issue from what I thought would be coming with the cover. But very, very enjoyable change. Let's go see what we have for ads, though. It's time to take a look at those on the front inside cover again we have another ad for corn nuts uh corn gone wrong this time it's barbecue flavored one with a uh ear of corn spray painting a brick wall saying corn gone wrong on it everything hardcore well, let's see surprisingly hard, hardcore corn snacks in 8 mean flavors yeah there you go corn nuts then you get another advertisement for a JVC boombox and this was the time I think Tom and DJ talked about this at the time when boomboxes were sort of going out of style. This one, I think it has, this one is huge. It's got 460 watts. It's got, um, it looks like it's got multiple disc CDs. And it plays MP3s as well, so MP3 CDs. So, there you go. Next page, we've got the Got Milk ad with, uh, let's see, who is that again? Zhangji. Yes, from uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, chopping a glass of milk in half and saying nine essential nutrients in a very easy to open bottle. Which, please don't open your bottles of milk with a uh, karate moves. That's that just that's just gonna waste the milk. And then we've got the uh, uh this the goofy mosaic, not the mo- goofy mosaic ad for tobacco is wacko if you're a teen. Tired ty- about tired of that. You've got a bunch of uh people on low rider bicycles. I I think this I think this ad screams hipster du- hipster douchebag. Yeah, these people and it's for Fruitopia, the uh fruit drink. Yeah, I'm not buying Fruitopia at all. A few more pages in is a Tom and Jerry War of the Whiskers game, which looks like a kind of three D platformer where you fight as Tom and Jerry and get to destroy each other in a certain way. It's uh, promoted by uh, WB and it has a free Tom and Jerry collectible DC book inside every game pack. So there is an incentive to go out and find that. Get an advertisement for X Games 8, August 17th to the 22nd on ESPN, ESPN2, ABC, and EXPN.com. And I bet it's also playing on the Ocho, so go check it out there. After that, I've got an ad for the DVD and VHS release of Lord of the Rings, the first in the uh, Peter Jackson movie. I guess this is The Fellowship of the Ring. And uh, it has a 10-minute preview of The Two Towers, a movie that was so long. Definitely, if you're watching Two Towers in the theater, make sure you don't have a large drink at the beginning of the film because there's a lot of water sequences at the end that will definitely, definitely be harming you after sitting in the movie theater for two and a half hours. After that, we've got... uh, What is this? C12 Final Resistance? It's got this old bearded man. I have no idea what this ad for. It doesn't entice me in any way, shape, or form. The back inside cover is an advertisement for Tony's Original Crust Pizza. It's got a very stylized... Rollerblader eating some uh, pizza, as uh, you, they they mentioned you should eat so your feet can hit the street. Eat pizza, get points, log on, bid and get stuff for Tony's Pizza. Interesting. And then the back outside cover is for Tang Berry... Berry Panic? Yeah, Berry Panic. It's got the orangutan hanging from the middle of the, uh... Whatever it is, saying, Straw included, spitballs sold separately, so... Yeah, I would be concerned more about other things that a monkey would be flinging rather than spitballs, but that's just me. But anyhow, a good issue, uh, average ads. But we're going to take a break right now, like we always do, and come back with our next book, which is going to be an interesting one. Green Lantern, Evil's Might, number one. Imagine the world you have known
1: all your life suddenly begins to change. The changes are
2: almost imperceptible at first, but soon everything comes crashing around
1: you. Past and present contradict each other. History is no longer immutable. Inconsistencies begin to pop up. New
2: origins rendered stories only a few years old, null and void.
1: Those long gone are no longer dead. Worst of all your friends and loved ones are vanishing, or changing. The very fabric of reality surrounding the DC Universe is unraveling. In Smallville,
2: Jor-El and Lara have
1: returned to take Superman back to an unexploded Krypton. In Metropolis, Superman is faced with a multitude of Batmen. men.
2: The time stream, made fragile by countless twists and myriad travels, is now spinning out of control. Time is running out
1: quickly only the greatest heroes of every era and reality can stop this crisis in time and stop it they must
2: or the DC universe will cease to exist perhaps never to have
1: existed at all the heroes and villains of the DC universe are facing their zero hour.
2: In 1994, DC published Zero Hour, Crisis in Time, a five-issue miniseries designed to fix some of the continuity issues that had cropped up since the
1: conclusion of The Crisis on Infinite Earths. This was a huge deal, and because of that, and because Superman played such a large part in that story, From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, hosted by Jeffrey Taylor and Michael Bailey, will be covering... The superman issues as well as zero hour itself we will also be looking at all of the official crossovers to the series in
2: addition to devoting several episodes to the follow-up event zero month where superman meets a brand new enemy conduit zero
1: hour zero month only at from crisis to crisis a superman podcast From Crisis to Crisis can be found at the Superman homepage, which is located at www.supermanhomepage.com and is part of the Superman Podcast Network, which is located at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com Also be sure to check out the Fortress of Bailey 2,
2: which is located at www.fortressofbailey2.com There you will find new episodes of From Crisis to Crisis, as well as all kinds of fun bits of business connected to Zero Hour and Zero
1: We need to record another new trailer. Another one? Yes. You know that we read comics and then talk about comics because, as we've established, talking about comics you've not read is just dumb. Yeah, and you make me do it every Thursday. Well, we've moved. Have we? Yes, we have outgrown our old location. I don't feel like i And we have now road. moved to 2TrueFreaks.com. What was that again? 2TrueFreaks.com. Hey, kids' comics, still every Thursday.
0: And we're back. And we're going to take a look at our second book this time out. This is part of a three-issue, I guess, prestige format Elseworlds book, entitled Green Lantern, Evil's Might. This one, of course, is issue one. It had a cover date of 2002, with a release date of August 28th of 2002, and a cover price of 5.95 in the U.S. The title was Evil's Might. The writers were Howard Chaykin and David Tishman. The penciler was Marshall Rogers. The inker was John... Sibolero, Sibolero, woke will with that, colorist was Chris Chukri, the letterer was Bob Lappin, and the editor was Andrew Helfer. Off the bustling streets of New York City, circa the late 1800s, youthful Kyle Rayner and Irish mob boss Alan Scott deliver some consequences, copyright Alan Emily Middleton, 2014 already observed, to store owner Angus Kelly, who has neglected to pay up his $10 protection fee. Kyle stops Alan from beating Kelly within an inch of his life, and tells him that he'll catch up with the crew later at Feeney's Pub. As the mob boys depart, Kelly thanks Kyle for saving his life and offers him anything he wants from his pawn shop. Thankful, Kyle spies a strange green lantern, and takes it in exchange for saving the old man's life. Meanwhile, outside the steps of City Hall, suffragette worker Carol Ferris is raising the ire of a couple of the local constabulary. Luckily, Inspector Hal Jordan just happened by to put the policeman in their place, and plant a kiss on the lips of his soon-to-be wife. Cut to the offices of the New York Evening Graphic, where a mysterious artist who goes by the pseudonym Rain or Shine, get it, Rain or Shine, Rain or you, you get it, delivers his latest political cartoon, lampooning Boss Tweed and his cronies. Accepting his pay, Kyle heads back to his rundown apartment, where he examines the linen he got from Mr. Kelly, finding a strange ring lodged inside it. As he puts the ring on, he's suddenly bathed in emerald energy and tossed out the window into the Hudson for his trouble. Wondering what just happened, Kyle swims to the shore and heads back home. The next day, Inspector Jordan is casing out Kelly Pond, as the police have found the proprietor dead inside the store. Certain that the Bowery Greens, the local Irish mob, have something to do with the murder, Jordan tells the copper that he wants to speak with Alan Scott. Over at the public library, Kyle is exiting with books relating to gemology and magic talismans when he bumps into Carol Ferris, still petitioning people to sign for women's suffrage. Flustered by the run-in and drawn in by the charm of Miss Ferris, Kyle Kyle offers to sign the petition, provided she spends an evening with him. Probably not in that way, though. Despite the consternation of her friend, Carol accepts the offer as Kyle heads off to meet with Alan Scott. We get a quick scene of Boss Tweed discussing plans of funneling some money from the construction of the New York subway system, then it's off to Barnum's Congress of Anomalies, where Kyle and Alan are discussing his role with the Bowery Greens. Kyle says he's uncomfortable with the direction the gang is going in, and Alan tells him if he's worried about Kelly, he doesn't need to be. He went back and took care of it. For good. This prompts the start of a fight between the two, which is quickly broken up by a passing police officer. As the two part ways, Alan tells Kyle that they aren't done yet. Later that night, Kyle ponders his fate with the Bowery Greens, but decides instead to be a force for good as he dons the ring and uses it to extinguish a tenement fire and rebuild the homes. The onlooking immigrants believe that the Flying Green Man is a leprechaun, but Kyle assures them that he's just a poor soul like themselves, who's finally found the means to put his money where his mouth is. After another scene dealing with the shady business dealings and police brutality, we see Kyle and Carol meeting up for their "quote unquote" date at the unfinished arm of the Statue of Liberty. The two share their love for Irish folk songs as they walk together through the Bowery and end the night with a dinner at an out of the to- out of the way diner. Impressed with Kyle's manner. Carol invites him to a fancy dress ball that her father is hosting next Saturday, and Kyle graciously accepts. Cut to a brothel where the Bowery Greens are living it up with the ladies, until Inspector Hal Jordan bursts in asking questions about Alan and Kyle's parts in the murder of Angus Kelly. Alan thinks that Jordan is just jealous of Kyle cutting in on Jordan's woman, which gets him a cloud of the head for his troubles. Warning him not to ever speak ill of his fiance, Jordan tells Alan to give him the location of Kyle Rayner. Meanwhile, Kyle is passing by the tenement he saved and rebuilt the last night. Unfortunately, the emerald energy gave out, and the building has collapsed, with the occupants just barely able to make it out in time. Partnering if what he doing makes a difference, Kyle re-enters his apartment to find young Jimmy working on touching up the latest Rayner Shine political cartoon. Jimmy says that he won't tell a soul about Kyle doing the drawings, so long as he allows the displaced youth to be his assistant. Retreat to scenes of the Ferris's planning for the ball, a worker accident of the digging in the subway, an awkward dinner date between Carol and Hal, before retreating to the Ferris ball, where the, every member of the 1% are in costume. The elder Ferris makes, the, makes sure Inspector Jordan has made up with his daughter, while Kyle sneaks a quick dance with her while her beau is distracted but the party is disrupted by Alan Scott and the Bowery Greens casing the joint and demanding all of their money, and for Kyle to make himself known. Unfortunately for Alan, Kyle does just that, in the guise of Green Lantern and ends up taking down the gang and embarrassing Jordan in the process. As the crooks are placed in the paddy wagon, Jordan attempts to handcuff Green Lantern as well, but he easily escapes the shackles and flies off into the night, but not before witnessing Ferris slap his daughter for refusing to marry Hal Jordan, something which would garter him respectability amongst the city's elite. And as the story ends, we see Inspector Jordan reading the latest edition of the Morning Graphic with the lead story of how the Green Lantern saved the day while Jordan stood by and did nothing, scowling how remarks that he'll see both Kyle Rayner and this Green Lantern dead, and God help whoever stands in his way. This is a well-written, beautifully drawn Elseworlds comic that I would probably enjoy a heck of a lot more if I had really any real interest or knowledge of the goings-on of late 1800s New York City politics. But since I don't, it kind of falls flat for me. It's not that it's a bad book, it's just that it didn't capture my interest the way the previous book did. Obviously, Chaykin and Rogers love this kind of stuff, and they've done a heck of a lot of research into what was going on at the time. There's not a specific year when this was set, but the Boss Tweed and Tammany Hall organization that happened in New York was set around the 1870s, so that's probably the time period they're going for. The era was rife with corruption and kickbacks, and that plays a minor subplot in the book. So... If you're interested in New York politics of you know the late, 18, of the late 1800s and that sort of, I don't know, corruption going on within the city, then this is probably for you. The art by Rogers, however, is stunning, with incredible detail being put into the architecture and the clothing style of the time. So, despite my disconnect from the books, I found them to be really enjoyable, at least this first one. I've got a few specific notes. Uh, On the cover, it's one of those sort of classic eighteen hundred cityscape photos that you'd see in like a museum of this is the building of New York and you've got that sort of sepia tone type look with a very Alan Scott Green Lantern drawn in on the cover. It's obviously not Alan because he's not the blonde character. It's Kyle, but his costume is very much the Alan Scott era costume. Uh, for instance, uh Kyle is wearing his ring on the left hand on the cover, and I'll see if uh throughout the book if that stays the case. Pages five through eight, the intercutting between scenes made the book feel more cinematic, but it also made it kind of difficult to synopsize. I put basically generic views of what was going on. There's scenes dealing with uh Boss Tweed and the Tammany Hall characters but it's not essential to the plot, but it does add to the cinematic feel of the book overall. Page 9. It makes sense in this book that Carol Ferris would be campaigning for women's suffrage in this era. I wonder if her friend Eleanor Perk is a character from the old Green Lantern, Lantern comics as a friend of Carol or perhaps a proponent of women's suffrage. I did a Google search to try and find anything about that name, and it didn't come up with anything specific to the time period, and I'm not that familiar with Green Lantern comics from the Silver Age, so I couldn't really say if Eleanor Perk was a character that came out of those comics. But knowing Chakin and Tishman and what they did with this book, it, they probably researched it very heavily, and it's, it's either a actual character that uh, fought for women's suffrage or perhaps a character from the Green Lantern comics. Page 10, we get the introduction of Hal Jordan. He's a cop, not a space cop, but a cop nonetheless. And I guess, like any other continuity, he's the horniest man ever as he plants an inappropriate kiss on a woman in front of everyone, which is unheard of in uh, the late, 18, late 1800s, I, I guess. Page 12, we get an example of a poster. Well, we get a poster on the wall for a production of Faust. And the character of Faust in this poster is what Kyle takes his cue for his costume for being Green Lantern. It is still very much the Alan Scott one with the large purple cape and the red shirt and the green pants. But we see it hinted at here as this poster is that's how he that was his inspiration for coming up with the uh costume. Page sixteen in the book. Hal seems like a good inspector. He seems like a good cop, but he is still ends up being kind of a dickweed. I'm wondering how this is going to progress in the future of the book, whether or not Hal's going to turn around, or whether he's going to be the antagonist of the story. It'll be interesting to find out. Page 24, we see Kyle putting out the fire, these these tenement buildings, then rebuilding them with uh, Green Lantern constructs. Unfortunately, he doesn't know that the constructs won't last more than 24 hours, and then after that, the buildings unfortunately collapse page 27. This was kind of interesting. It's a nice historical thing. Supposedly, for some time before the arm of the Statue of Liberty was placed on top of the statue, it was available to be visited in downtown New York. However, I'm kind of wondering, I always thought the green look of the metal was due to the oxidation of the copper over an extended period of time of it being exposed to, you know, the salt water of the Atlantic Ocean. So I don't know why here the arm itself would look that sort of, I don't want to say really rusted, but oxidized version of copper. So that's interesting, but I don't know if it's historically accurate. Page 28. This is one of the things that kind of annoys me about this particular book and and many other forms as well. We get Kyle and Carol singing this song, and it takes up a good portion of these few panels as they sing this obviously Irish tune That's from the, from this era, but having no reference to it, it, it makes no sense. It's kind of like if it's kind of akin to what they did in the Lord of the Rings book where, or the Hobbit book, where you would hear the dwarves singing some song and having no reference to how the melody goes or how it's sung, essentially, it really doesn't, it doesn't work for me in the book page 32, we get the introduction of the character of Jimmy, and he'll play a role in the rest of the book. He's kind of right now sort of an analog for Terry Berg. I don't think he's going to come out as gay in the book, but he's Kyle's assistant, his plucky assistant. Another one of the things I glossed over in the book here is on page 35. It's some of the uh, workers digging the subway, and I guess there's a gas explosion, or they, they come across a patch of natural gas, and there's an explosion and it's it's pretty horrific. You see a person catch on fire and burn to a cinder. It's it, it's not it's not graphic, but it is disturbing. So it, it it's the good kind of graphic I like in a comic. Page thirty seven in the back of the uh, of this bottom panel, we get uh, Aster and Vanderbilt. And I don't I can't remember the names, but they were the very they were the very they were the 1% of New York, and they're commenting here on Ed Ferris's excess at throwing this party, that he's new money, and this is kind of unbecoming of him, the way he's acting. But then my last real note for the uh, issue is uh, this this one-page splash here where Kyle and Carol are dancing, and Kyle's in his Green Lantern uniform, and Carol's in sort of a Statue of Liberty outfit. And it's it's really cool. They're, they're dancing together, but if you look at the bottom, they're dancing on a cloud of emerald energy, which is kind of neat. They're floating above the ground. So it gives a nice ethereal quality. But the thing that caught my eye is in the background, right behind uh, Green Lantern or Kyle's shoulder, is a character that looks exactly like the Tangent Universe Green Lantern. I thought it was kind of interesting that they slip a character that looks just like that in there, but other than that, I think this is an interesting issue. It probably would have been, it probably would have helped my interest a lot more if I had any relationship to what was going on in New York City, but I think the spectacular artwork by Marshall Rogers, and an engaging story by Howard Chakin that thankfully doesn't involve a grinning goon Guy Gardner, really made this a good issue to read. But next time out, we've got another issue of Green Lantern. This one's going to be 154, and it's a heavy one. It's dealing with Terry, and something's happened to him. Something really bad. It'll be an interesting issue to cover. Plus, we'll also be taking a look at issue number two of Green Lantern Evil's Might and reading any emails that you guys write right in. So, I hope you guys have a wonderful week. Thanks for downloading and listening, and we'll see you next time on another episode of Just One of the Guys. A Green Lantern Podcast. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern Podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingle. All images, stories, and music are copyrighted by their respected copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books could be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website located at 2 truefreakscom There you can find the RSS feed as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for 2 True Freaks Presents, just one of the guys podcast, and you can subscribe to the show there. You can search for me on Facebook as well, and now you can find me there, as it was a requirement of my new Demonza Core contract. But it doesn't mean that I'll be joining the little Candy Crush group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday with another episode of Just One of the Guys: A Green Lantern. The opening music for today's show was The Violent Femmes and their song Blister in the Sun, off their album The Violent Femmes. This uh, this song can also be found on the soundtrack for the movie Gross Point Blank, a wonderful, really fun, and somewhat subversive John Cusack movie. If you'd like to buy either this song, the album by The Violent Femmes, or the movie Gross Point Blank, you've made some good choices. And another good choice would be to go to 2 to click on the Amazon banner to take you to purchase these items. Whenever you go to 2 and click on the Amazon banner at the upper left-hand corner of the page, you'll be transported to Amazon where you could buy CDs, digital downloads, movies, music, games, anything that the modern geek could desire. And all for incredibly low prices. And anytime you use the link at 2 to make a purchase at Amazon.com, a small amount of your purchase price goes back to the website. You won't see anything extra taken out of your pocket, but it definitely does help the 2 freaks out. So anytime you're thinking about shopping for violent femmes, CDs, or songs, make sure you use the link at 2 That almost rhymed.